An asteroid is headed towards Earth. How bad could it be? <laughs> What's the world's largest asteroid crater, and how big is it? What is dead wax? <laughs> okay, answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, one Rochester, New York newspaper said, an asteroid is headed towards Earth, don't cancel your dinner plans. <laughs> Good times. Because they thought it's not too bad, it's probably going to miss us. But how bad could this be? What is the world's largest asteroid crater and where is it? I'll give you four choices. Thank you. It's in South Africa, Russia, Canada, or the U.S.? I would say the crater that already hit. Oh, yes. The this Earth. is from a long, long, a long time ago. Long time ago. Long, long, long time, time ago. ago. I'll say Russia. Okay. And we all know that one hit there around 1917. That was a do big, we all know that? big asteroid or meteor. Do we, Bob? Yes, we do. <laughs> okay. But this one is in South Africa, and this shows you how bad it can be, okay? It's oh. called the Freer de Fort Crater, it's the world's largest and oldest. It is 185 miles wide. That's how big that crater is, the size of 32,000 football fields. 32,000? 32, 32,000. I wonder how big it was. Well, I guess it was. It was created 2 billion years ago by a meteor or asteroid that was between 6 and 9 miles wide. But that's how bad it could be, 185 miles wide. That's how big a crater could be from an asteroid. That's bad. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be from here to Chicago to Indianapolis. And, uh, and now let's get to dead wax. What's that, that about, Marsh? <laughs> well, you'll like the answer to this. Dead wax can be found on a vinyl record. Listen up, kids. It's the space between the last groove of the song and the record label. Oh, they call that dead wax. Yeah, because there's no groove, there's no label. Apparently been a phrase been around a long time, and there's a new restaurant in Milwaukee called Dead Wax. It's over at Radio City, and uh, it's going to be opening soon. And so it gave the definition. I found that fascinating. Dead wax. I never heard of that Me before. Me either. So that goes back to the very first records, which were not wax, but made out of something different than the vinyl we have today. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right, Marsha, I have a word, and I want to know what it is. Allorophile. What is an allorophile? You and our two children are both allorophiles. It means fabulous. A-I-L-U-R-O-P-H-I-L-E. Allorophile. <laughs> two clues. The word is a noun, and it's a Greek word for something. Okay. Tree lover. No. That's Cat lover. Cat, Cat lover? Cat lover. Aw. It's actually a early 20th century word. Allorophile. Very interesting. Okay. Is it, is it Marsha? <laughs> Okay, moving on. You and I, what's one of our favorite Christmas movies? It's a Wonderful Life. That's correct. And it turns out that good old Mr. Potter, I was just reading an article today, it said Mr. Potter is considered number six 
on the American Film Institute uh, list of movie villains, top movie villains. Oh, really? Yeah, Mr. Potter. <laughs> Mr. But, Potter. Yes, which of course meant I had to go and see who the top five were. The Just, top five movie villains. Right. Uh, so number six is Mr. I, Potter. I have to ask if the Wicked Witch of the West is one of she those. She is, number four. Okay, because The Wizard of Oz, one of my favorite films. So were the others more action films and things like that? No. No? No. Five villains. You've I've, seen all these movies. And where are they from? What years? It's in your lifetime here, whereas uh, Wonderful Life is an old film. Okay, don't know. Okay, I'll go backwards. After uh, number five is Nurse Ratchet. Oh, okay. From what? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yes, right? Yes, that was the uh, bane of uh, Jack Nicholson's Jack. existence yeah. <laughs> in the uh, mental institution. She was a charmer. Four was Wicked Witch, like we said. Number three... Darth Vader. Oh, of course, Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back. So he was number two. This goes back to childhood. Norman Bates. Oh, from the uh, Alfred Hitchcock film. Psycho. (laughs) Yes, mom, mommy. (laughs) And number one, this guy, you don't like it all. You didn't even make it through the movie. Oh, it's got to be the Anthony Hopkins character of, what was that guy, the the flesh-eating? That's him. What is it? Dr. Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Silence of the Lambs. We got we lost you in the early going on that film. I, I got so creeped out in that film before anything happened. Yeah, I left. Yeah, which was wise because I couldn't have bared sitting next to you through that. <laughs> yeah, when I when I go to a film that's a, a thriller like that, I just crawl up in the seat yes, like yes. a little it's, kid. It's, it's very so, embarrassing. Oh, it is yeah. embarrassing. Yes, I was glad you left. Yes, I remember uh, Dave Camp, one of my friends, going to a theater, and we went to see. I think it was Alien, the first Alien, where the you know that big thing with its teeth and the water's falling over the front of his teeth, and, and he says, "Bobby, Bobby, it's okay." And my, my best friend. How, that's, how that's not my were little you? best friend. We were like at you about, were like thirty. We were about you? twenty-seven or eight years oh old. Oh my god! Oh, oh lord! That's yeah. Yeah, your uh, well, kids won't even go to a scary movie with you. You're just too embarrassing That's the right. audience. <laughs> they go to them, but they won't go with Dad. No, they won't. Dad doesn't like to go to those. <laughs> okay, uh, here's a very interesting question, Marsh. How did playing cards become the first Canadian currency? Really? Playing cards. Well, it had to be Indian times? No, not necessarily. No? No, no early Canadian, No. Uh, playing cards uh, were the gambling period. Uh, it has to do with the fact that the first playing cards were handmade. They weren't. Oh, okay. You know, they were kind of works of art. Okay. Explain, Lucy. Well, playing cards were much more valuable than the factory slick cards produced by the millions today. They were works of art. Were considered rare and precious. They became the first paper currency of Canada when the French governor used them to pay off some war debts in 1685, believe it or not. In 1765, when every pack of playing cards was taxed one shilling by the British, they were used for class admission to the University of Pennsylvania. (laughs) Think of that as tuition. Oh, wow. Um, How many sets of playing cards you got? Wow. And Napoleon even used playing cards as ration certificates during the French Revolution. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's... uh... That was all from Isaac Asimov's Book of Facts. But interesting that playing cards were the first Canadian currency. I have to share that with some of my Canadian friends and see if they knew that. Okay, Bob. If you were planning dinner for the nights around King Arthur's round table, Uh how many dinner plates do you have to put out? 
Oh, how many nights did he have? That's the question. Were there like 20 or something like around, that? He had. He was always at the head of the table. Yeah. And there were how many nights around him? I said 20. That okay. was my first guess. That is so wrong. Oh, okay. So he had like 100 or something like 150. that? 150. Whoa. Yes. That's could, a big table. That's a very big table. It, they could, 100 nights, and you know, they had all that stuff on too, so it had to be a lot of room there. Quite the boys club, don't oh you think? Oh my God, yes. Yes, yes. Speaking of boys club, <laughs> baseball has was a boys club for years and years before it ever became, you know, integrated. Let me ask you this. Uh, back in 1959, Ted Williams, famous baseball player, did something that I would say no player ever before and certainly ever since did. What did he do? What did Ted Williams do? Didn't he do something with uh, that uh, African-American player? It has to do with his salary, Marsh. Oh, he gave half of it to... Here's what happened in 1959. For the first time in his career, Ted Williams' batting average dropped to below 300, below the 300 mark. And he was the highest paid player in sports that year. He had a salary of $125,000. Still a good amount of money these days. He was offered the same contract by the Red Sox the next year, but he signed only after the team agreed to reduce his salary by 28%. So he said, just cut $35,000 off there. The reason? He said the Red Sox had always treated him fairly. He didn't deserve as much as the team was offering that year. And he had a lifetime batting average of 344. In one year, in 1941, his batting average was 406. Are you? Is that possible? Yeah. Wow. Nobody's hit 400 cents. And the guy who slipped from that mark decided I should give some of my money back. Wow. Can you imagine any Anybody? sports players to do oh, that today? Oh, my God. Today? It, it is so out there. that Isn't no that interesting? Would, he was yeah. like a Boy Scout. Ted Williams. Oh, Ted. That's just amazing. Ted Williams of the Boston Red Sox. I had never heard that story before. As you know, when I'm in a time crunch for questions for our show, I resort to the Beatles trivia box. Oh, yes. <laughs> hey, very appropriate as we have a number of different Beatle products that, on the market. That's right. Okay, just a couple of quickies. How good you do. Okay. All right. All right. What famous rock and roll singer did the Beatles visit at home during their second U.S. tour? That was Elvis, I think. Correct. What was the title for Ringo's first solo LP? The solo LP? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I don't know. I never tracked Ringo that much. No, I didn't either. It was Sentimental Journey. Oh, that's right. And they were all standards, old standards. Big band. It was originally named Ringo Stardust, but they changed it <laughs> to Sentimental Journey. You I know, don't. one thing I've noticed watching that new documentary, uh, Get Back, is amazing how underestimated Ringo Starr is in many people's minds because no matter what type of song they start playing in that new song let's try this let's try that he will play whatever style of drumming that uh -huh. they ask he can just adapt he just adapts like magic it's amazing just effortless had no idea huh okay, okay. marsh i have a question for you here this is art in art okay mm -hmm. for 40 years the art purchases of this american tycoon accounted for one-fourth of all the art purchases oh. in the world, who was he? Yeah, was it the guy in uh, California with the big house we went to? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, help me here. He was a newspaper publisher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Citizen. Kane, yeah, I know. Yeah, and he was? He was. William. William. Randolph. Hearst. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> had it, had it right there. Yeah, yeah he the, was uh, always collecting. He was a sensationalist newspaper publisher, and he built this huge castle, San Simeon, which you can visit. It's a beautiful uh, museum. 
That was a 200,000-acre estate. Now, here's something about the museum, okay? Uh-huh. He filled these homes he had all over. He had that house. He had the warehouses. He had a fantasy Bavarian village that could uh, house 60 guests. Uh, and then that little little Santa Monica beach house that uh, Marion Davies had, uh-huh. which had 110 rooms. Uh, little, just a little not tiny places. That little side, honey. But the art collection. He filled these homes and a Bronx warehouse with Charles I's bed, deer antler chandeliers, German armor, mummy cases, paintings, silver, and other art items. He even bought a monastery and other buildings, had them dismantled, created, and shipped to his warehouses. He purchased over 20,000 items at more than $50 million in a 40-year time period. And during that period, he collected a fourth of all the art purchases in the world. It's amazing. Yeah, he couldn't get enough of anything. Yeah. He had some real psychological slippage. <laughs> in, in addition to his homes and his warehouses being filled with him, at one time below the main building of the San Simeon Estate, there were two acres of cellars filled yeah, with artworks. Yeah. Warehouses everywhere, cellars full, and he still couldn't get enough. Yeah. He just had a big void. Who who would, who did he have issues with, mommy or daddy? It was daddy. his dad, yeah. supposedly, That's, yeah. Never he, saw his dad enough, never got yeah. enough of his dad. And yeah. so I guess he collected things to make himself feel better or yeah, something. Yeah, that's not uncommon. I know people like that, and they had daddy issues too. Okay, okay Bob. <laughs> Here's a question about a neutron star. You know what a neutron star no, is? No, I don't know what a neutron it, star it's is. It's very dense. It's a collapsed core of a massive star and is composed primarily of neutrons. Black holes are considerably more massive than neutron stars, so they're just very dense collapsed stars. So we've gone from dead wax to collapsed stars. Yeah, it's it's a theme. It's a Christmas theme. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, here's the question. Okay. What's your best guess for how much a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh? Oh, that's one of those things like it would weigh... Seven million metric tons, or something like that. <laughs> uh, is that what you're saying? Yes. Ah, uh, close. Four billion tons. Holy a, cow! A teaspoon of neutron star. Four billion tons. I but, don't know how how you can possibly measure that, but someone did, and there you are. It's a huge scale. It <laughs> <laughs> on a huge scale. Okay, I've got another bit of uh, trivia here on uh, another famous wealthy person, okay? Mm -hmm. She wasn't wealthy when she was married to the President of the United States, but when Jackie Onassis was married to Aristotle Onassis, why didn't she wear the jewelry her husband gave her when she came back to this country to visit? That uh, Onassis gave her? Yeah. Why didn't she wear it? Because it was too gaudy and full of diamonds and made her look uh, cheesy? No. What? It would cost a fortune for her to even bring it into this country. Really? Yeah. Aristotle Onassis, known also as Aerie, gave Jackie $5 million worth of jewelry the first year they were married. Wow. And, and the second l- year, not so much. Well, huh? listen to this. This is interesting. <laughs> so she would have had to pay $1.2 million in duty to bring those items duty, into the United States. that's the word States. I was trying to think of, yeah. And now listen to some of the gifts she received. Okay. This is just obscene, Okay. Uh, among her gifts that first year were diamond necklaces, earrings, and gold bracelets. She received a ruby the size of an Easter egg with matching earrings made of heart-shaped rubies surrounded by diamonds. The cost for those were over a million dollars. That's 50, 60 years ago. But it said uh, Aristotle Onassis always had a surprise on Jackie's breakfast tray every morning, every even morning. when she was halfway around the world. Usually it was a gold or diamond bracelet, and once she found a string of Japanese pearls wrapped around a breakfast roll. 
Oh, my God. That's the kind of guy for a girl to get married to. Think of all the food and shelter you could give the world with that kind of expenditure. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's just excessively sad. But okay. Not unless you get it. (laughs) No. (laughs) Wouldn't you be embarrassed to get all that? No, not at all. (laughs) Time for a break, Bob. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Okay, Marsha, these days when you think of big, gleaming cities with a lot of skyscrapers, what country do you think of? Well... Not just one city, but multiple cities with big skyscrapers. China. China, China, of course, right. What is China's tallest city? By tallest, I mean the tallest buildings. What is China's most populous and tallest city? Well, it'd have to be uh, not Beijing. It's, It's... This city's name used to mean you had been kidnapped. I have no idea. Shanghai. Oh, really? I was Shanghai. Yeah, of okay. course. Well, Shanghai is the tallest and most populous city in China. Any idea how many people it has? Uh, Shanghai has, I'll say, 15 million people. 27.7 oh, million, and it grew last year during COVID, 2.3%. It grew? You'd think it would be the opposite. You would think so. It's also the tallest Chinese city. It has 175 skyscrapers. Now, that's defined as buildings over 492 feet tall. And it's topped by the world's second tallest skyscraper. It's a 2,073-foot Shanghai Tower. Hmm. All right. Now, what city has more skyscrapers than any other city? It's not Shanghai? No. Oh. Again, what city has more buildings over 492 feet Okay, Abu Dhabi. <laughs> yeah, I knew you wanted to say that. Congratulations, Marsha. You're wrong. No, okay, okay. it's Hong Kong. Oh, it, it's so which the Chinese okay. are uh, yeah. this beautiful bastion of freedom and democracy, and they're shutting it down. It's sad, sad, sad. It has more skyscrapers in the world than any other city. Five hundred ten skyscrapers. Oh, that's amazing. In fact, six of the top ten cities in terms of skyscrapers are in China. Six of the top ten these days. The only two American cities among the top ten with skyscrapers these days. What do you think they are? Well, I would think it's uh, New York and Dallas. New York and Chicago. New York is number three with two hundred ninety-six skyscrapers, and Chicago is ninth with one hundred thirty skyscrapers. Just kind of interesting. I thought thought. Dallas had more than Chicago. No. It might have more population these days, but doesn't have more skyscrapers. Now, you were talking about losing population. Uh Guess which city has lost more population than almost any skyscraper city? Hong Kong. That's right. It's Hong Kong, which used to be a free Western city. It's gone from a record 7.4 million in 2020 to 7.39 million in 2021. So in just one year, it lost 87,000 people, 1.3% of the population. Mm. If you've grown up with freedom all your life and then suddenly you're yeah, having, by China. Having been there, I just can't imagine what it must be like for those people who've been born and raised there and were able to vote yeah. for the representatives and everything yeah. else. It must be terrible. Yep. Okay. What is needed, Bob, for we humans to taste food? Taste buds. Well, that's... That's the answer. Ding, 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 no. ding, ding. I won. Before the taste buds. Tongue. You have to have a tongue. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you have to have an appetite. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I don't know. What am I doing wrong here? It's not taste buds. It is saliva. It's true for all foods. Chemicals from food must first dissolve in saliva to render a taste on the receptors of your taste buds. 
to test the theory, Bob. Later on, just dry your tongue with a paper towel and try to eat. I am not going to do that, Marsh. <laughs> I don't see why I should try to do that. Your taste buds will not pick up the taste and single your brain what this food is. So saliva is the prerequisite, prerequisite for tasting. I'll be you done. have to have it. It chemically dissolves the food and gives you the taste. I didn't know on that. On your taste buds. That's why I'm sharing this it's with you. It's spit. Spit. You need spit <laughs> you need to taste. You need the spit. And as long as I'm on food, Bob, what are the five basic tastes? Sweetness, yep. sour, mm-hmm. bitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's three. What would be the others? Salty. Okay, yes. And the last one, I would never gotten out and how long this has been around, but umami. Umami, you say? U-M-A-M-I. The fifth taste is more abstract on the flavor wheel. It's basically a Japanese word that means delicious. It's savory and wonderful and magically makes our other four tastes taste stronger or better. It's umami, that little extra something that makes something delicious. Okay, but where is this flavor wheel? This flavor wheel, there's a food pyramid, but the flavor wheel, where is that? I don't know. Sounds like a uh, merry-go-round that never (laughs) stops. It's the flavor wheel. Okay, I have a food question too. How big is the world's largest food court? How many people can be served there at a time? The world's largest food court? Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not, is it in the United States? No, but it's not in Abu Dhabi, I'll tell you that. (laughs) So you have to come up with a different city. Okay. Uh, The largest food court. Well, I'll just tell you, it's in Cairo, Egypt. It's at the Oasis Restaurants and Entertainment in Cairo, Egypt. And it was built in 2011. It has seating for 4,223 people with 25 restaurants to choose from. Wow. But that's how big the food court is. That's crazy. 4,223 people. The food court covers more than 400,000 square feet of floor space, even has a designated kids zone. Even its parking lot is huge. There's space for 1,000 vehicles. All that comes from the Guinness Book of World Records. You don't want to buy a round of drinks when you're sitting in that food court. (laughs) Everything's on me! Yeah, that would be bad. (laughs) Okay. Bob, do you know who was the first president to have a presidential aircraft? I think it was Roosevelt. Yes. It was Franklin Roosevelt. Correct. And I think it's in the Air Force Museum. I think I've seen that. In Dayton, Ohio, yeah. You did? Yeah, my uncle took um, Ben and I there, and we actually went up into it. It was a tight aircraft. It wasn't a big aircraft like Air Force One. Is this the one called the Sacred Cow? Might be. I don't know. He flew on this specially equipped Douglas DC-4, nicknamed the Sacred Cow. And he used it to fly to Yalta for the conference, you know, with Stalin and Churchill. Mm -hmm. And the plane, the first presidential plane, was fitted with a lift so he could board in his wheelchair. Okay, I got another money question for you here. What famous American industrialist finally became allergic to money after years of amassing wealth? You mean physically allergic? Physically allergic to paper money. Was it Ford or uh, Rockefeller? It was that era. Uh, Rockefeller or... uh, uh, this man was known for banks? libraries. Libraries. Yeah, I was going to say, is it, uh, oh, gosh, I know his There's banks, a big hall see. in New York uh, named after him. Yeah, for Carnegie. Pa- that's it. Andrew Carnegie, or Carnegie, as he's also known, who is one of the richest Americans ever, he practically became allergic to money as he got older and richer. That is he said weird. he was offended by the sight and touch of it, and he never carried any with him. Oh, <laughs> 
In fact, he was once thrown off a London tram because he didn't have money to pay his fare. That's funny. <laughs> I'm allergic to money. I can't give you any. Wow. I'll buy your I'll buy your railroad, but <laughs> I can't afford to pay for my fare here. My minions will write you a check. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, Bob, as you know, Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story is hitting the silver screen. It's a remake of the 61 film where Maria was a Puerto Rican girl and Tony was a white boy. But did you know? It was originally about a Catholic boy and a Jewish girl, and it was called East Side Story. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And of course, but, basically, it's Romeo and Juliet's story. Yeah, yeah. Modernized. Set in New York City. Yeah, so it was Jewish and Catholic originally. Yeah, that I was did the, not know that. That was the big uh, mashup. That film soundtrack, and I had this too, spent 54 weeks as number one on Billboard album charts. Really? 54 weeks. That's almost unheard of. That's That's, like Carole King's uh, Tapestry was on for that long too. And they had movie product placement back then. (laughs) Bromo Seltzer, Coca-Cola, and Tootsie Roll all made it into that movie. (laughs) Speaking of Broadway shows, I've got one here. Okay. What Broadway show turned a handsome profit for an investment by the Columbia Broadcasting System? Well, I need CBS to... invested in a Broadway show. Oh, to show on television? In the 19... No, they just invested in the show in the 1960s. Well, can you give... Is it a musical? It's a musical. It and, was a uh, very big musical. Was it My Fair Lady? My Fair Lady, yes. CBS invested $400,000 into this and the network made a handsome profit 100 times over their wow. investment. So My Fair Lady returned $40 million to CBS for a $400,000 investment. But back then, CBS was owned by a family. You know, it wasn't a public company. So there that was, explains that. There was such a to-do back then. Um, Julie Andrews was the star of the Broadway show. My Fair Lady, and then when they made the movie, they wanted uh, Audrey Hepburn. Oh, that's right. And uh, the big controversy. Oh, it was wildly. And then, of course, uh, Julie Andrews unpopular. proved herself in in uh, in the Sound of Music that she could be oh, every yeah. bit as big a star as yeah. anyone and, else and do her own singing. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Marcia. I have another geography question. We've got counties all over the United States. That's the, one of the smallest bodies of government. After you go from towns and cities, you go to counties and you go to state. What state has the fewest counties? I'll give you some clues. Rhode Island, Hawaii, West Virginia, or Delaware? I'll say Hawaii. I would have thought that could be true, but then you think of all the islands. They have a lot of islands, and some of them are big, so they could be more than one county. So each one is, yeah, okay, that's true. All right, I'll think again. All right, Rhode Island, Hawaii, West Virginia, or Delaware? Delaware. Delaware, you're right, that's it. Delaware has just three counties. Really? So it's the state with the fewest. Now, Rhode Island and Hawaii have five each, so that's all the bigger they are. Now, California, how many Oh, California is the largest by population or one of the largest populations of any state. How many counties does it have? I'll say 53. 58. Pretty good. Texas has the most counties of any state. Okay. How many counties? 75. Oh, no, really? 254 counties. Yeah. Huh. And then there, of course, are several states that don't even appear on the list because they're not divided into counties at all. Alaska and Louisiana have boroughs and parishes, respectively. Oh, that's where parish comes from. All their parishes are what we would call counties. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was probably based on a religious nature yeah. at the time, like yeah. an archdiocese oh, or yeah. something like so, that. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm going to finish up with a quote from Mae West, my namesake. <laughs> <laughs> 
She is not your namesake. Okay. It's my middle name, though, but it's May not. May is, yeah. yeah. But it's not after May West. May or may not. It may or may not be after May. You don't know. Okay. She said, I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. <laughs> <laughs> and she had a fun time doing it, too, didn't she? <laughs> you bet she did. <laughs> okay. That's it for today. We hope you join us next time. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And you've been listening to The, the Off Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.